1: Have you ever seen the movie The Matrix? It's about a guy named Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, who discovers that he's been inhabiting a dream world. The life he thought he was living is actually an elaborate hallucination. He's having that hallucination while, unbeknownst to him, his actual physical body is inside a gooey, coffin-sized pod one among many pods, rows and rows of pods, each pod containing a human being absorbed in a dream. These people have been put in their pods by robot overlords and given dream lives as pacifiers. The choice faced by Neo to keep living a delusion or wake up to reality is famously captured in the movie's red pill scene. Neo has been contacted by rebels who have entered his dream or, strictly speaking, whose avatars have entered his dream. Their leader, Morpheus, played by Laurence Fishburne, explains the situation to Neo. You are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste or see or touch, a prison for your mind. The prison is called the Matrix, but there's no way to explain to Neo what the Matrix ultimately is. The only way to get the whole picture, says Morpheus, is to, quote, see it for yourself. He offers Neo two pills, a red one and a blue one. Neo can take the blue pill and return to his dream world, or take the red pill and break through the shroud of delusion. Neo chooses the red pill.
0: Robert Wright is the author of The Evolution of God, a New York Times bestseller and finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His other books include The Moral Animal, Non-Zero, and Three Scientists and Their Gods. In 2009, Wright was named as Foreign Policy Magazine as one of the top 100 global thinkers Wright is a contributing editor to The New Republic and a contributor to Time and Slate. He has also written for The Atlantic Monthly, The New Yorker, The New Financial Times. He has taught courses of philosophy and religion at Princeton and the University of Pennsylvania. He is a visiting professor of science and religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York and editor-in-chief of websites bloggingheads.tv and meaningoflife.tv. His new book is Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. Thank you for joining me, Bob. Well, thank you for having me, Rick. You read a very interesting piece from the very beginning of your book. And I think one of the things that when we start to look at our minds and ourselves is that we need to... Uh, use language to do so, and metaphor is one of our biggest tools. What was that scene a metaphor for?
1: Yeah, well, that the movie The Matrix. I mean, there's a couple of relevant things here. Um, one is that uh, actually, as it happens, the, I, I found out that the, that uh, the directors had had Keanu Reeves read three books in preparation for the role. One of them was on one I had written about evolutionary psychology, called The Moral Animal. Um, and I'll, I'll get back to the the further significance of that. But the other thing is that this, this movie was taken by a lot of what you might call Western Buddhists as a, as so-called Dharma movie. In other words, they saw the movie as an allegory for kind of what their Buddhist practice is about. Because of course, according to Buddhism, we do live in a shroud of delusion ordinarily. uh, And that is the source of our suffering. And it's also the reason we make other people suffer because we don't see the real world. Um, clearly and by working on that, by getting better at seeing the world clearly through such practices as meditation, uh, the idea is we can become happier people, become better people. Um, so I, I you know I used the movie um, just just to first of all set up the Buddhist proposition and, and others had seen it as symbolizing that. Uh, but then as I said, it was interesting to me that the directors had seen some kind of connection. Uh, to my work in evolutionary psychology. I'm still not honestly entirely sure what connection they saw. I see a clear connection uh, because when I wrote the book The Moral Animal about evolutionary psychology, I came to the conclusion that people are not designed by natural selection to always see the world clearly. They're not designed to be consistently happy. So in a certain sense, uh, these two things of Buddhism focuses on suffering and uh, a kind of illusion. Uh, are are built are, are kind of built into us. And, and so that seemed to me to... Uh, and and I, I didn't become fully aware of this until much later when I started writing this book, Why Buddhism is True, but this, this, this does seem to me to partly corroborate uh, the Buddhist proposition. And the more I looked into it, the more convinced uh, I became that that was the case. And that's a big part of the impetus behind writing this book. Tell us about... What is exactly
0: evolutionary psychology? What is the meaning of that branch of that
1: of science? So, evolutionary psychology is the study of how natural selection shaped the human mind. You know, by engineering the human brain. And the thing about natural selection is, uh, it's only interested in one thing it only cares about one thing and of course when I say it cares, I'm speaking metaphorically natural selection doesn't isn't a conscious designer but if you look at what priorities govern its kind of engineering of animals, um, it's just one thing it's getting genes in, into the next generation It's you know traits that are good at helping animals get genes into the next generation will flourish. Uh, those that don't won't. And that's, in some sense, the end of the story. So if those traits that are good at getting genes transmitted uh, lead to unhappiness, they will still spread. And if, even if they lead the, the organism to, in a sense, not see the world clearly, they will still spread. So a good example of that latter thing is that uh, people tend to overestimate the speed at which objects are approaching them. Now, when you think about this, it makes sense from natural selections point of view on kind of better safe than sorry grounds, right? It's better to get out of the way of like a charging beast or whatever too soon than too late. Uh, But the way natural selection seems to have uh, realized uh, that, that preference is actually get us to misperceive the velocity of objects. So that's just a trivial example of how uh, misperception can be built into us by natural selection. And I think there are more significant examples that have to do with uh, with Buddhism. Uh,
0: this is so interesting to me because I always think of, of the fight or flight response on the on the pampas on uh, on the savannas. It's a great tool, but in the suburbs, <laughs> stuck in traffic, not so good.
1: Yeah. Well, more specifically, uh, you know, what's what we call road rage. Yeah. I mean. Uh, Rage is a good example of something I I talk about in the book a lot. I talk about it in terms of anxiety and and all kinds of issues we have, which is that uh, tools, so to speak, mental tools that were designed by natural selection for one environment are now put into another environment. And I want to emphasize like it wasn't all sweetness and light, even in the environment they were designed for. So if anxiety is indeed built into us as it seems to be, well, that's unpleasant, and that's another example of, of how natural selection is willing to build something into us that makes us suffer if it gets its uh, work done. But then you take these things like anxiety and rage and put them in a new environment, and they don't even get the job done that natural selection wanted them to get done, like preserve the organism. Or in the case of rage, uh, the idea seems to be, I mean the function of that reaction seems to be, that if somebody, you know, disrespects you or abuses you or steals your property or your mate or whatever, it's in your interest to show people in your society that you will not be trifled with, you will not be abused. And so you get upset, you scream, and you're even willing to fight. And, and even if you get hurt in the fight, it's still kind of worth it from natural selections point of view because you have shown that uh, you, you can't be messed with. Well, if you, if you think about that impulse, of rage transported into this modern environment, it, it doesn't make that kind of sense at all because nobody witnessing the road rage is ever going to see you again. You don't, there's no point in impressing them with how they can't mess with you. They're never going to have the opportunity. Uh, and you know, not to mention the fact that um, you know, it's da- more dangerous to, to, uh, to do this while driving a big car uh, than, than, than it is to get into a, a fist fight that, that probably people in your society will bring to a halt before long.
0: You know, um, one of the beautiful things about this book is how readable it is. From the very first sentence, you pulled me right in. And so talk about that beginning to the book where you say what this book does not have
1: in it. I don't spend a whole lot of time um, doing the standard kind of, this study shows that meditation can relieve your stress by this amount and, and so on. I am more interested in showing, you know, not just that meditation can make you happier, but that it brings what I would call a valid happiness, or can bring that because it really does involve your seeing the world more clearly. And it's not just the relief of your suffering. It involves you seeing the world more clearly. And in addition to that, I think it tends, it's not guaranteed, but it tends to make you a better person in terms of the way you relate to other people, a more considerate person, a, a less problematic person. So. I'm, I'm interested in establishing that, uh, that meditation in particular, especially if informed by the Buddhist philosophy that, that uh, was its original context, um, can bring you not just happiness but a valid happiness.
0: Now the journey for this book, for you, began with a meditation retreat. Uh, back in 2003. So what inspired you as an evolutionary psychologist and and a journalist and a writer and a scientist to attend a silent meditation retreat?
1: Well, I guess for one thing, you know, writing about human nature from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, had, as I said, convinced me that this predicament is problematic and a little bit absurd. We are prone to suffering. Including, by the way, just the fact that happiness, gratification always evaporates (laughs) right after you get it, right? You eat something, you have sex, you, you buy something that brings you gratification for a while, it evaporates. And that seems to be by design as a way of keeping the animal motivated to get more stuff, have more sex, eat more food, and so on, right? So, so, so we're, you know, and, and again, this meshes very well with Buddhism. The fleetingness of gratification is something that Buddhism emphasizes. So I, I had appreciated from evolutionary psychology how all this stuff is built into us certain illusions, various forms of suffering, uh, and also certain uh, inclinations toward what I would call misbehavior, bad moral behavior. Uh, And not only that, but then we deceive ourselves into thinking it's good moral behavior and that is in fact one of the illusions. So I, I was aware of all this, but what evolutionary psychology doesn't provide you with is, is anything to do about it. It has, it has the diagnosis, but it doesn't have a prescription. Buddhism has both the diagnosis and the prescription, and I think that's one reason um, I was interested in pursuing meditation. Now, I'm not a naturally good meditator. I have very limited attention span. And so meditation had never really worked for me. Um, and so it took a, a week-long silent meditation retreat for it to really click for me. And and, and that came in 2003. I, I think that um,
0: I, I like your, the way this book is constructed, your personal journey and your journey. Um, you do a great job of slowly peeling back the layers of the onion that is, uh, Buddhism. Uh, how did this, uh, come about? Did you write the whole book at once or was it, uh, as a gradual, uh, as you explored your, the understanding yourself?
1: You know, it was probably kind of a combination. I mean, first of all, I did not just sit down and write it. That never happens with me. It's, <laughs> it's more like I write and then I just perpetually revise and, uh, um, and, and I don't want to get into the, the suffering involved in that, but um, but I will say that I think um, it, it's certainly true that when I first started writing the book, I knew less than I now know about the Buddhist uh, philosophy. So I, I, I think I, I sat down and started writing uh, the book when I had, you know, heard the things about, I'd been to the retreat, I'd been to more than one retreat by then. Uh, I had a daily practice, I had, so I had heard a number of things, and I had interviewed a few Buddhist uh, teachers and, and I would heard a lot of Dharma talks at, retwe- at retreats, so I had that, uh, but at that point I had not done what I did in the course of writing the book, which is I stopped, I taught a couple of seminars at Princeton on Buddhism, freshman seminars. Uh, I turned that into an online course called Buddhism and Modern Psychology, and doing all this taught me a lot more as did just researching the book. I was learning more anyway, but, but taking this kind of pause, uh, put me in a much better position to write the part of the book that, as you note, kind of comes later. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, uh, and, and I think that structure wound up working. Um, you know, I, I start out just with the experience kind of, of, uh, of being a meditator and, uh, And, 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 one of the, one of the theses of the book is that even if you are just doing um, what you might call therapeutic meditation, you're just doing it to relieve stress, you know, probably mindfulness meditation is the, is uh, the common version. You're doing it to relieve stress or, or to deal with anxiety. You are closer than you think. To using meditation to explore really deep issues in Buddhist philosophy, and even I, I, I would I think this warrants the term spiritual exploration. Even though my book isn't about the supernatural parts of Buddhism like reincarnation, but, but I think uh, at a certain depth of, of philosophical and, and moral uh, exploration, um, you know, the meditation warrants the term spiritual. And I, I, I think just you know doing things like looking at <coughs> excuse me. Um, doing things like looking at anxiety or stress from a different uh, vantage point, as you can do um, with meditation, does put you on the path to thinking about the very nature of yourself in a fundamentally different way as Buddhist philosophy um, prescribes. So you can go a lot, a lot deeper, you might say, even if you just start out using meditation um, therapeutically.
0: Now. what do you mean exactly by mindfulness meditation? There's a lot of uh, different uh, visions of this, from you know the extremely uh, spiritual to the uh, what what is called the um, just the more mundane version. Uh, so uh, Western uh, Buddhist philosophy. What do you mean by mindfulness meditation?
1: Yeah, well, it basically means. Um, observing things carefully. I mean, the the standard technique, the most common technique is to sit down, start focusing on your breath, which is hard because the mind naturally, naturally wanders. It took me a couple of days at a silent meditation retreat before I could even focus on my breath. Um, But with a lot of people, it comes easier. And then once you, you have established that focus, and so your mind is not wandering so much at least, um, and your mind is calmer, Then you start observing other things. Many of them are kind of inside your head, so to speak. You know, feelings, thoughts. uh, They can be outside, like like sounds. Um, But uh, that's the basic idea. And if you look at the ancient text on mindfulness meditation, um, uh, it it prescribes just systematically kind of examining everything. Uh, In fact, it's a much more thoroughgoing version of that than you genuinely generally get from modern. uh, mindfulness uh, teaching, and and there's some other differences, but basically modern mindfulness is, is I think pretty true to the original conception of mindfulness. And as people may have heard it, it does tend to bring you into the present moment just by its nature. I I wouldn't say that that's the main point of the exercise from my point of view. Um, And I should say I've done mindfulness in the context of what's called Vipassana meditation, that means insight. Uh, so, so the, the idea there is very explicitly uh, to reach a clearer understanding of things, including your own mind. And to see things like feelings and thoughts from a different vantage point, And to appreciate, you know, to view them you might say with a certain skepticism. You know, they're just these things floating by. You don't have to identify with them. You don't have to take them as seriously as we tend to take our feelings and thoughts. And one reason I, I, I think there's value in, in connecting evolutionary psychology to all this, because is is that evolutionary psychology reinforces how crazy it would be to take all your feelings and thoughts seriously. Right? I mean <laughs> exactly. because they they first of all, they weren't designed to always be in our interest in the strictest sense to begin with, even when we're in the environment we were designed for, which is more like a hunter-gather environment. But in a modern environment, they are certainly not. Worth accepting as good guides, and so I think it's a, you know, I, I hope the book helps uh, reinforce what uh, is the idea behind mindfulness meditation. Anyway, which is which is a kind of, you might say, skepticism of of, of, of the things going on in, in your in your head. And as you observe these things mindfully, you just get a more objective perspective on them. I mean, you're not drawn into them. You you're not uh, you don't so reflexively take ownership of them and do their bidding. I think that this is uh, something that you convey really
0: well. And there are a number of metaphors and analogies that you use. So I'd, I'd like you to just talk about, as a writer, using these tools, because I think this is the, where the, really where the rubber meets the road in all of this, from psychology to psychiatry to neuroscience to Buddhism, our best, sharpest, and unfortunately, dullest tool is language.
1: Yeah, well this is, uh, you know, this goes way back of course. I mean, you know, broadly speaking uh, Buddhist contemplative practice is in the mystical tradition. There are also Christian mystics, Muslim mystics, Jewish mystics, uh, Hindu mystics. There are various kinds of mystics, although the Eastern traditions are thought of as being more, more broadly mystical. But one feature of Mysticism. In fact, if you look at uh, William James's book *Varieties of Religious Experience*, this classic, more than a century old now, he 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 kind of describes a mystical experience as "quote noetic but ineffable." Noetic means it imparts knowledge; ineffable means you can't describe the knowledge, right? It de- <laughs> it defies language. Now, one thing I'm trying to do in this book is swim against the tide and actually do the best you can do with uh, language to actually break down and analyze some of these arcane Buddhist ideas like so-called not self, the idea that the self in some sense doesn't exist, or emptiness, the idea that the things you see out there, you're in some sense misperceiving. They, they, they don't have exactly exactly the kind of essence uh, that we tend to ascribe to things. So there, there are these, these apprehensions like not self and emptiness that Traditionally, a lot of people are just kind of throwing up their hands and say, "Look, you you, you had to be there." I mean, you, either you have the experience and you know what it is, or you don't. Um, I, I've worked, I've worked hard to. Well, two things: I've talked to a lot of very adept meditators about their experiences, uh, and and I've also you know learned about the 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 Buddhist philosophical explication of them. But I've also, although I'm not, I don't consider myself some kind of great meditator. I have done enough of these silent meditation retreats uh, to give me occasional kind of brushes with deeper experience. Because when you go to a retreat of one or two weeks and it's a truly silent retreat and you're disciplined about the meditation, you can get to places you probably won't get to very often in a daily practice. And so I have had glimpses of what these more adept meditators mean when they talk about. Uh, not-self or emptiness, and I hope that that has helped me convey these ideas to the reader.
0: Let's start with not-self. This is hard for most of us to grasp. Uh, This podcast is called Narrative Species, (laughs) and that's because, uh, to a certain extent, I regard humans as a narrative species. That's our, our mode. If I ask you about yourself, you're going to tell me a story. And there's, we have this storytelling gnome somewhere in the back of our heads. Mm. And we think of it as somewhat eternal from the time we were born to the time we die. That
1: storytelling gnome is there. Right. Right. And we have a story about ourselves, and we defend the story very fiercely. We have Mm. a narrative about ourselves. So, you know... um, But how could that be when there's no self? Well... (laughs) So uh, explain how that works with no self. Well, in a sense, I mean... First of all, no self means a lot of, it has different dimensions mm-hmm. in Buddhism. And I can talk about several of them. But part of the idea is that this story is, is just a story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, you have, I am this person who blank. You know, it's like when you have a book that comes out, as I just did, You may find yourself reacting adversely to negative reviews, as I always have whenever I've gotten them. And and the reason, part of the reason, they challenge your narrative about yourself. The whole idea of writing a book is to go out and claim that you're like, you you deserve to be, you know, you're like a you're like a serious author. That we all, you know, people who write books want to be taken seriously as writers, and they want people to, you know, think that they are these smart people and these good writers. That's just part of the deal. And when somebody writes a review suggesting otherwise, you, you are so attached to the narrative about yourself that it hurts and you reject it and, and, and uh, and maybe on, on what would be considered objectively good grounds for rejecting it, but maybe not. But, but the point I'm making is um, uh, that, you know, the construction of a story about yourself and the preservation of the story, your kind of fierce preservation of that story is part of what uh, evolutionary psychology, I think has an explanation for why we would be designed for natural selection to have these stories we tell about ourselves and insist on, on guarding them. You know, including I am a fundamentally good person. Mm-hmm. Right? We all, we all, you know, if you if you survey people the world around, they've shown most, a you know, fairly large majority of people think they are better than average. Well, that it can't be the case that most people are better than average, right? Some of us are deluding ourselves and that seems to be uh, designed into it. So, so one of the meanings of, of self the Buddhism questions is this idea that there's this you that is the same you that was there yesterday and the week before and the year before. There's a story about you that applies to your whole life. I am this person who blank, I have always been this person who blank. Buddhism is skeptical of the idea that anything is permanent, but certainly uh, the idea that uh, the, the self is. And by the way, let me mention this is actually, uh, this may be uh, a bridge too far, but uh, in a way this connects the idea of not self to, to emptiness, which is just that you know, psychologists have shown that people, under many circumstances, tend to buy into the idea that there is like essence of person mm-hmm. very readily. So like if you're in a checkout line and the person in front of you you is rude to the clerk, you t- we tend to think that person is a jerk. Whereas for all we know, that person just found out that their spouse has cancer or something and is just in one in one of those very bad moods that we've all been in, right? Mm-hmm. And psychologists have shown that under, uh, under some circumstances, we do tend to attribute too much to a person's disposition in explaining their behavior. You know, this person is a jerk or this person is that, and not enough to circumstance. And that shows, A, that we are all buying into this idea that there really is this this self that endures from day to day rather than being this very fluid thing Mm -hmm. that changes according to circumstance and and behaves differently on one day uh, than the next. And, and that, uh, and this is the segue to this uh, obscure concept of emptiness. When you see essence in somebody like that, you're projecting essence onto them, that would be considered a failure to see emptiness. You're, You're, you're attributing more in the way of enduring solid nature to something, in this case a person, then is really there. So in a way these are the two, uh, uh, and in fact there's sometimes uh, in, in Buddhism there are sometimes these two things, not self and emptiness, are unified with a common terminology. So the, the the way it's put is you have not self, anatta in the ancient language of Pali, and so does everything else. That <laughs> lamp has not self. It does not have an essence. I see essence of lamp, but it's not there according to Buddhism. So. We just covered a whole bunch, and, and if you want, we can get back to not-self because there are there are other interesting dimensions to it that are being borne out by uh, by psychology.
0: Well, for me, that that's one of the things that I'm really interested in is because what you talked about is we have no self and neither do those things out there. What we're doing, in a sense, when we look at somebody and say they're a jerk, we are fictionalizing. We are making up a story for mm-hmm. them where there really is
1: none and that's what our brains are really driven to do. Well, it's certainly not a story as consistent <laughs> and simple as the one we're telling, right? right? And um, our brains are designed to do that. They're designed to do two things to to tell a story about ourselves that serves certain purposes mm-hmm. that that were high on natural selection's agenda and to tell stories about others that were high on natural selection's agenda. So, for example, that that tendency I just mentioned to attribute essence to people, it's actually subsequent exploration in psychology has, has, has disclosed that actually there's an interesting wrinkle, which is that with our friends and allies, if they do something good, we attribute that to the kind of person they are. So yeah, that's, he's a good person. Of course he did this favor for somebody. If they do something bad, we explain it away in terms of circumstance. He didn't get his nap, peer group pressure, whatever. (laughs) With our, with our enemies and rivals, It's the opposite. If they do something bad, we go, yeah, well, that's the kind of person they are. If they do something good, we explain it away. You know, he was just trying to impress this woman or whatever. Um, And uh, when you think about it, this really gets us into trouble. This I think is, is why, you know, when, when, uh, when there's a run up to a war, the people who favor the war go to great lengths to demonize the leader of the country they want to invade. Uh, and sometimes they don't, these people don't need much help. Sometimes the leaders are pretty bad. But in any event, if you're favoring invasion, it's really in your interest to get the leader into this enemy box. Because once they're there, they can't get out. Because of this very cognitive bias I just described. Anything bad they do will reinforce the enemy image. Anything good they do will be explained away. Because they're already, we're, once we're seeing essence of bad person in them, it's a, that's a very hard position for them to get out of. And so uh, I, I think, you know, this is an example where kind of psychology meets Buddhism. Modern psychology is showing us we have these cognitive biases. I think if you ask what triggers them, you get back to illusions that Buddhism talks about, like the illusion of essence. And you also get back to feelings. I mean, what, what perceiving the essence of something is, I think, is having a kind of a subtle feeling about it that you may not even notice. Right? So, like, uh, just a quick retreat anecdote. I was on my first retreat walking through the woods. I see a weed called a plantain weed that I had spent a lot of my life trying to dig up but when it infested my lawn. And for the first time ever, I just looked at it and I thought, why have I been trying to kill this weed? It's as beautiful as everything else. And what was going on there is um, I was not seeing essence of weed. And I was not having a feeling, a subtle feeling that normally had had infused my perception of the weed was not there, and and I think that this is the way it works when we have these feelings: essence of good person, essence of bad person, essence of weed, even essence of lamp. Um, I think there's a little bit of a feeling involved, and I think these feelings trigger these cognitive biases. Once we're talking about the realm of you know other human beings, that get us into trouble, and uh, and I think mindfulness meditation, one thing it does is make you more attentive to your feeling, more aware when your feelings are subtly shaping your cognition and your behavior, and that is one thing that can be liberating, is is perceiving the the, the levers that are pushing you and pulling you and deciding whether you want to be pushed and pulled.
0: I think this mindfulness meditation, in a sense, stands at the center of the not-self and the emptiness. It allows you to, by understanding The not self to see the emptiness around you and to dispose, uh, if you can, maybe even for just a brief second, of the templates that we impose over everything we see, which are these templates are informed by evolution
1: and by our own often irrelevant past experiences. Right. And I think the, you know, the way, one way this works is that. the feelings that normally shape your reactions mm-hmm. just subside a little. You get a little distance from them. They don't necessarily go away, but they're no longer governing your perception as they once were. And to get back to, first of all, not self, that allows you to just start seeing the contents of your mind as, as in some sense not necessarily yours. I mean, these are things you thought of as, as, you know, uh, I mean, when, you, when you're responding to anxiety and you're in its grips, it's just part of you, it's just, it's just like, what's going on now? And, 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 um, and there's no two ways about it, and you're accepting it as what's as being a part of you. Whereas when you look at it mindfully and get some perspective on it, you're, you're raising the question, of, does this really have to be part of me? Same, same with various uh, thoughts, hateful thoughts, uh, rage, whatever. If you look at them from a certain vantage point, you're starting to ask the question, does this really have to be part of me? And, and in Buddhist philosophy, uh, you keep asking that about things. And that's what leads you to question the conventional existence of self. That's one thing that leads you to that. Because if if all the contents of your mind, you can kind of observe them just kind of floating by, you start going, well, maybe I am not intrinsically the solid, tightly integrated thing I thought that I was. And that can be uh, very liberating. So, so that, that begins with, with, with the loosening the grip of feelings on you. And then to get back to what you're talking about, you know, what you said about emptiness, you know, essence of things. I again think that fundamentally the same thing is going on there. Our perceptions of other things much more than we realize are subtly shaped by feeling. When those feelings subside and the mind becomes calmer, you are less in there, in the, in the grip of the feelings and I think that's one thing that's going on with Uh, the perception of so-called emptiness, which by the way is a bad term I think because people who have the the experience, and I think I had a little flash of it when when I was looking at that weed, usually say that what happens is everything is more beautiful or everything exudes a positive energy or whatever. It's not like a negative feeling. They feel better and, and, and and they feel better about things than they did uh, before the apprehension of emptiness.
0: Now, there's a concept that comes out of, I think, evolutionary psychology of, of modules. And I, this is really interesting to me because I, what we've learned about the brain suggests that most of, and when you just think about it, most of what your brain is doing is something that, that language would get in the way of. If I had to think every second, heart beat, lungs breathe, move muscles, open eyes, close eyes. If I had to think about all that stuff, right. I would never get out of bed. I couldn't right. move. And so there's a whole bunch of modules that are processing all the time that keep us, you know, standing straight, not drooling, whatever. Um, occasionally, I think those modules will reach a point where they acquire a linguistic uh, complexity that allows them to have words. And if you're standing, if you're mindfully meditating, you're looking at your mind and you think of it as a lake, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening under that lake that's keeping you alive and breathing, et cetera. Occasionally a fish will jump out of that lake and that's like, that jerk in front of me, oh, that girl's hot oh this is a great book yeah. so it, it, i think the mindfulness meditation allows you to see those things and say well <laughs> they're a part they're there but Well, it not. allows
1: you to see the part where they jump out of the water so to speak so exactly so i mean we it, yeah i mean the idea behind the modular model is that modules is that first of all okay the mind It's no single actor. It's a bunch of actors that were that were designed to do different things in during different maybe different parts of evolutionary history. There's a part that wants you to eat food. There's a part that wants you to impress people. And if you've ever been at a cocktail party, talking to somebody but eyeing the the food on the the hors d'oeuvres, right, And, and feeling both at once, you're you're feeling two different actors encouraging you to do two different things. And the idea here is that uh, you know, all kinds of things like attracting a mate, the way you react when you become, you're you in the presence of somebody you find attractive and you want to impress. You know, a lot of special tasks have special kind of mental organs or actors or whatever that are governing them. And and often we are unaware of, of the interplay among the actors and sometimes the competition among the actors for our attention. Um, and we just think that like whichever actor One, at any given moment, that's who we are. That we even think we decided. We decide, you know, are we, we're not even aware that we are in a different mode now because this attractive person walked into the room. We're not even aware that we are doing a different set of things than we were doing when we were sitting in the room alone or we were in the room in the presence of somebody we just don't care about. Uh, But the fact is we're shifting into different modes all the time. The modular model says this is different actors seizing control of the mind and what mindfulness meditation helps you do is start to witness the seizing, after which the seizing is less successful. In other words, I mean, you sometimes hear meditation teachers say, thoughts think themselves, which sounds like a weird thing. Like, but, but what they mean is that once you attain a certain level of meditative calm, whereas you'd previously thought of yourself as thinking the thoughts, there's this conscious self that thinks the thoughts, now it just seems like, oh, this thought just kind of showed up from the right You know, from from right field, so to speak, and it just drifted by and now it's gone. And the modular model suggests that, yeah, that's more like what's going on. Thoughts are being injected into your realm of consciousness by these, by different modules. You are immediately identifying with them normally, taking ownership and saying, yeah, that's my thought, I thought it. But that's not really what's going on. And so in, in this, in this view, uh, mindfulness meditation is helping you uh, witness the workings of a mind that is in fact modular.
0: How do the modules that you understand through evolutionary psychology uh, appear in the vision of Buddhist mindful meditation?
1: Uh, Right, and and I think this is really important. I mean, there's, there's two things, there's first of all what I just said that That, you know, when, when meditation teachers say that thoughts think themselves, that's very consistent with the, this modular idea that thoughts are being kind of injected by, into consciousness by different uh, kind of subterranean actors. But there's also an idea that I float in the book that if you ask what kind of triggers uh, modules, it may be feelings. So, um, you know, you, uh, Well, you feel, you walk through a neighborhood and you feel fearful. Well, this triggers like a whole, now you're in this particular frame of mind. This very vigilant frame of mind that uh, tends to see threats even where they aren't there, you know, because evolution's principle is also often better safe than sorry, you know, and so on. Or um, you feel, you see somebody and you feel a subtle feeling of romantic attraction and that helps usher in, uh, you know, a, a very different, Uh, version of you, a different module kind of seizes control of the show. And you do the kinds of things a person does in the, in the presence of an an attractive uh, prospect. Um, And you're, you're typically not aware of this, sometimes because the feelings are so subtle. And, and I think uh, one thing mindfulness meditation does by making you more aware of feelings, it, it really gives you in principle the option of, Deciding that you don't want, you know, whole modules to just seize control. Now, this is more challenging with some things than others. Like, jealousy is a real challenge, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a very powerful thing and does shift people into just fundamentally different modes, right? I mean, if you look back at the way you were during a fit of jealousy or, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're like, uh, not just the, the kind of rage part, but, but, but you're kind of like imagining... Uh, you know, whole scenarios. Oh, and when she did this, she must have been sneaking off with this guy. And when she did that, you know, it, it's just like it, it leads you into crazy land. And yet, according to evolutionary psychologists, that's that's a designed feature of the mind to shift into into this particular in this particular kind of systematically distorted perspective. And again, it's a challenge because jealousy is one of those strong things. But that said. Uh, I do think mindfulness meditation can make you better at heading things off at the past even strong feelings like um, rage and to get back to modules what you're doing is saying no I, I don't want this whole module to seize control of my entire mind at this at this moment and that's real power it's uh, like a computer virus gets in your
0: brain and takes a hold of it and does things with your mental computer it's you don't want it to, and it's right. not, I, don't I, help
1: it. I, I never thought of meditation as antivirus software, but that, that's <laughs> not, a, not a bad analogy. Uh, that's that. that is. Uh, one of the things I think,
0: you do a good job of weaving in your own personal experiences, and you take on the absolutely the hardest job any writer in the world can take on, which is you set out to describe the ineffable, <laughs> which is, uh, by definition, Undescribable, <laughs> yes. So a fool's guess, errand,
1: but I guess that's a very Buddhist uh, task. Yeah, well, it's 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 often not done. Mm-hmm. I mean, one you know, one distinctive thing about this book is that it's being written. Well, it's it's not entirely unique, but many books about meditation Buddhism are written by people who are really, really good meditators, deeply immersed. <laughs> they went off for months into, you know, to Burma or something and meditated or to a Thai rainforest or something. And um, and they, they, they have achieved depths I have not achieved. But that has a downside when it comes time to describe things. Because it, in a way, it's a subset of the general principle that experts are sometimes bad at describing things to other people. Because they've lost track of kind of what they can assume other people know about the subject or what they can't. And in the case of Buddhism, this is compounded by the fact that these experiences are intrinsically hard to describe. Mm -hmm. So I think it's probably an asset for me in terms of writing about it, that I'm kind of a, although I have a daily practice, I am in terms of like the deeper meditative experiences, I'm kind of a more of a visitor than a resident. And and so I, I think I can, you know, represent, I hope, uh, the, the, the naive reader who just doesn't know much about this stuff. And I've worked hard to try to make it clear to them, and to try to make fairly arcane ideas in Buddhist philosophy um, clear. Uh, and it's, uh, but you're right, it's a, it's a challenge. And, and it may be that complete success is uh, impossible by virtue of the terrain, but it's what I set out to do. Well, no, I, and I think too, by virtue of having written a book, I, to my
0: mind, reading is a really very specific form of meditation.
1: Hmm.
0: You're excluding the outside world. You're focusing on one idea. It's not you. It has nothing to do with you. It's just you're just processing data, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think that a book like this, an extended book on uh, Buddhist meditation, naturally lends you leads you to that place whether you want to go there or not you're you are taken there by those words and I think that you're specific you do some great jobs of you lead us up to a very you know sig- what is a significant experience for you and you do that in bits and pieces and I think that's an interesting decision
1: yeah um, I I do put a certain amount of myself in the book and and, and Partly because uh, it isn't just that I'm not a super adept meditator. I I also think I'm a particularly problematic case for meditation. I mean, (laughs) I'm really not exaggerating, and I hope it doesn't come come off as some kind of constructed shtick or something in the book when I say at the outset... I'm not well suited to meditation. I have, I've been actually diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. I don't have one of the more severe versions with hyperactivity and everything, but I always had trouble concentrating and never emerged from a college course with coherent notes, and I really tried. Um, So I have that working against me. I mean, meditation involves focus. Um, I am, you know, emotionally not as much on an even keel as a lot of people. That is not helpful if you're trying to meditate, probably. It gives you things to meditate on. (laughs) Once you can focus, you've got you've got lots of feelings to meditate on and, and honestly that does have its virtues i guess but um but 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 i think you know i say in the book that if i can meditate anyone can meditate i think that's not much of an exaggeration now with me it did uh, it took real work um and i don't want to act as if sustaining a daily practice is trivially easy it's a challenge and you have to be committed to it and 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 be convinced that it's bearing fruit which i think it is um but uh I did more than ever with any book I've written, I put myself in the book and it seemed to make sense. It makes me a little uncomfortable sometimes to be, you know, self revelatory, Um, but I thought it made sense. Because for one thing, just describing some of these experiences from the inside, I just think there was no, I would have been crazy not to take advantage of, of of the opportunity to describe, I mean, like to get back to not self when, when I'm at a retreat, and this is something that's not doesn't happen in my daily practice, but you know, five days into a retreat when you're when you're uh, in, you know, getting pretty deep, and I was sitting there and I, I felt a tingling in my foot, and I, I heard a bird singing outside and, and I thought, you know, that bird doesn't seem any less a part of me than the, the tingling of the foot, or the tingling of the foot doesn't seem any more a part of me. And so the bounds of myself had had almost dissolved. And when I describe this experience to these really adept meditators, they say, "Yeah, that's that's yeah, exactly. That's we we've we've been there. That that's a place you want to go, and that is in a sense part of the not-self experience. It's different from what I was describing. But I was earlier describing more of the interior version of the not-self experience, letting go of the constituents that you you normally think of as being yourself, feelings and thoughts. This is this I'd call the exterior version. But they're related because." letting go of things within you is conducive to uh, the kind of dissolution of the bounds between what you think of as yourself and the world out there. So so that's an experience I really thought needed describing, and it's really a, a morally significant experience because if you feel this continuity uh, you know, with, with things beyond you, then that affects the way you behave toward them. If you feel that other people are... That the bound between you and other people is less sharp, then you may uh, behave uh, behave better toward them, and uh, you you know even think of their welfare as more closely associated with yours. That's a very significant uh, thing. And and in Buddhist philosophy, that is the idea of not self is realizing that yourself is in some sense illusory, is supposed to uh, encourage you to be selfless in the moral sense of the term. It's supposed to to lead to what you might call Uh, better behavior, which gets back to this really interesting thing about Buddhism, which is this claim that uh, seeing the world clearly not only brings payoffs for you, uh, alleviates your suffering, um, it makes you a better person.
0: And I think uh, this is a book that wants no less and delivers no less than the ability to save the world. And that's... uh, where you take us. And I think that's a really, that's a bold and powerful statement, but I think you've managed to support it. So when you found yourself going in this direction of, oh my gosh, I'm writing a book that I think about stuff that could save the world. How did you feel as a writer and as a Buddhist? When, were you like looking at those thoughts going by and saying,
1: wow? Well, I mean, you know, I've always, I guess, been had an apocalyptic uh, streak, um, you know, I was brought up a Southern Baptist. Um, and, uh, you know, in my book, Non-Zero, which was taken as a very optimistic book, in some ways it was, I emphasized that I thought technology had kind of inexorably driven us to the brink of establishing a cohesive, harmonious global community. But I emphasized that it was by no means a done deal, and you can easily imagine ways the whole thing could fall apart. And I, I personally think, things are at least as in danger of ever as falling apart. And the argument I make in the book is that at the core of the problem of whether you're trying to hold the world together or just these days trying to hold America together or you're trying to hold, you know, the Middle East together, whatever, at the core of the problem is what you could call the psychology of tribalism, which involves cognitive biases of the kind I've described and others, uh, and as you might imagine by now I think that meditation is one good way to, to uh, lessen the pernicious power of these cognitive biases, to weaken the psychology of tribalism. And uh, it's not, it's not necessarily the only way, but I do think that to the extent that mindfulness meditation spreads, uh, especially in the context of Buddhist philosophy, and I've tried to provide some of that context in the book, um, you know, uh, People will be less subject to the actual delusions that sustain tribal conflict. I mean, I personally think, you know, I am personally on the anti Trump side of the great divide, but I do think that cognitive biases afflict both sides and they make things worse. I mean, to take a common example, the so called fake news, I have personally clicked retweet without sufficiently examining the source that I was the news I was spreading. And sometimes it's been a mistake. And when you ask what was doing it, it was like the feeling, it feeling good to spread news that reflects unfavorably on your ideological opponents. That feels good. And and yet, I think this is not constructive. Uh, even, I, I think it's not good for the anti-Trump side to be, to be doing this, to be overreacting to some of Trump's provocations and so on. And I think... Uh, Mindfulness meditation can help there. In fact, I've started something, it's, the URL is mindfulresistance.net. It's in its early days, but it, people can go there and sign up for a weekly newsletter we're doing where I'm trying to uh, encourage like a wise, skillful response to the challenge of, of Trumpism. But to get back to the big picture you're talking about, yes, I mean, wherever you see the kinds of tribal conflict, metaphorically speaking, that could spin out of control, uh, and I do think could lead to global chaos you're seeing a certain psychology that is a natural part of us. It's a product of natural selection. But I, I think we're now at a point where we have no choice but to become more aware of the way this distorts our vision uh, and and do something about it. And, and the great thing is I think the, the Buddhist claim is right, which is that, uh, you know, one way to put it is happiness and, and better uh, behavior, less tribal behavior converge. And, and further converge with seeing the world more clearly. Another way to say it, perhaps a little more dramatically, is that individual salvation does align with social salvation. Uh, other other religions have made that claim in a different sense. But the idea is that if you, you set out to save yourself, alleviate your own suffering, and if you do that by following a certain uh, path marked out by Buddhism, you will, you will play a role in saving society, and saving the social system. So, for you, in a sense,
0: tribalism is a series of modules that are created in our mind by society or uh,
1: by our history or our understanding of history and those modules and, and, and by our actual evolutionary history i mean some uh, of them are pretty i think some of these biases are firm not 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 beyond overriding but are firm parts of the mind that were built by natural selection i mean uh, the the one bias I mentioned where we look at friends and enemies differently I'm pretty sure is, and so too with so-called confirmation bias, which is part you know, that that's involved in spreading the fake news, which is just that you're very receptive to information that supports your argument, whereas you tend to reject information that doesn't yeah, I think these things are built into us As a, a psychologist and a Buddhist, one of the things that really
0: interested me as I read your book, um, was that um, this idea of we, thoughts think themselves. We, as we are reaching for something, we think, I am reaching for this because I thought of it. Now, actually, neuroscience is showing us that we're actually reaching before the thought hits our brains.
1: There is an experiment that seems to show that. I mean, there, there's some questions about the interpretation of it, but I've looked at the video of them actually doing the experiment. It seems pretty compelling to me where they um, they uh, they say to a person, okay, sit down. Whenever you feel like it, press the button, and then there's a a, a, a clock with a, I guess it's a, it's a hand, a second hand that's moving. It does a complete revolution just like once every two seconds or something. So they can clearly see where the hand was when they made the decision
0: mm-hmm. to
1: push the button. And so they say, okay, this is when I made the decision to push the button. And then the monitoring of the brain shows that actually the, the action that, that, that initiated the pushing of the button very significantly preceded your own awareness that you had made the decision to push the button. There's other evidence, some of it involving the so-called split brain patients. There's other evidence as well that we convince ourselves uh, that we make certain decisions and have certain motivations for them when neither of those things is true. It isn't the conscious us that made the decision. And the motivation we are convinced was behind the decision is, in fact, not the motivation.
0: One, As we uh, read this book as readers, I, I think nobody can read this book without being changed, without having their perceptions changed. And I think that's a really powerful experience. And I think it's something that can only happen if you read. I don't think it happens as easily as listening to a lecture or watching a TV or
1: listening to us even. I think the reading aspect of this is really key. That's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I, I you know, I certainly have seen, uh, you know, very well prepared talks using visual aids that succeeded in in conveying um, information. but. I mean, it's certainly the case that when you're trying to convey some sometimes you know deep or difficult, infra- and and subtle ideas, mm-hmm. and, and convey to people how subtly their 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 per- perception of the world is being influenced by these things, that takes a while, and you're probably going to have people who need to back up a few paragraphs and read it again sometimes, and mm-hmm. and. and uh, so I kind of see what you mean. I, I will say that, 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 that if you imagine what would it take to convey everything I try to convey in the book through a series of videos or something, that would be a major production effort. And it might be very effective and it might work for a kind of audience that the writing doesn't work for. But you, it, would be, it would be beyond the scope of one person to do it, I think. It would have to be a very impressive collaboration.
0: Well, I think at core when you decide to read, you made the decision to read. It's like you started to reach for those ideas in the book before yeah. you've even opened it up and yeah. you're participating. You're it's the analogy
1: is you're the director of the motion picture and you're the writer. Yeah. Right. Huh. yeah. Of course, these days I listen to books sometimes mm-hmm. instead of read them, you know, with audiobooks. Um and that's a slightly different experience. I think so too. And especially they- since the narrator is not me in this case right um, but uh, not that that's a bad thing. I mean I don't I don't think I, I have think a great you know narrator's gift but, um, but it's different because a voice influences the way you the way you think of something mm-hmm. and you know an interesting little thing is once you start hearing the same you know a certain number of actors do more than one book mm-hmm. and once you once you've heard an actor doing one book and then you hear them do the other book, that affects the book. You wow. think, wait, this is the same? I just had this experience. It was, it was, uh, you, you know, and it was like, and it was deeply shaping my because I already had this idea of this person mm-hmm. with this voice from the other book. So, you, so you—that's a perfect example of the uh, overlays, the the
0: kind of things that Buddhism would let you see through. R- to r- the r-
1: core r- that's message. exactly right. I had a view of essence of this person exactly, and it was shaping the way I perceived their narration of a different text. Wow. That's that's a good point. Uh, when you write a book like this and you've created
0: websites, you've got MeaningOfLife.tv and BloggingHeads.tv, you're working, and with uh, MindfulResistance.net, you're working on a big scale. So talk about the import and your ability to use the tools of technology, cutting-edge technology, really, to change uh, the minds of people from millions of years of evolution.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, We're talking about I'm glad you sc- think of it as a large scale. Sometimes it seems like a small scale. I'm definitely doing a lot of different things. I'm not not sure I've succeeded in making any of them huge. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there, I mean, there is... You might think to list the things you just listed that, like, will make up your mind. What is it you want to do? I do, I, I do like to think that there's a unified... Uh, motivation mm-hmm. in a certain sense. I mean, for example, Blogging Heads TV, one thing it's about is bringing together people who, who disagree, have different perspectives, and having them talk to each other, uh, which is, is an antidote to the psychology of tribalism. I mean, I've interviewed a number of Trump supporters on that site. I, I should probably interview more, but a lot of sites and a lot of podcasts these days just never do that. You, mm. you just, the point of tuning in to many of these podcasts um, about Trump or contemporary politics is to just be reminded again that you're right and the other side is wrong. And, and, and to be reminded how outrageous Trump is. Which, look, <laughs> few people have a, a higher estimation of his outrageousness than I do. But I just, I don't know that that's always productive. And so anyway, that, that's blogging heads, it's related. Um, Meaning of Life TV is related in other ways. I, 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 there I would like to foster a kind of intellectual humility. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of the 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 new atheist kind of uh, belligerent almost dismissal of everyone's religious views. I just don't think it's constructive for one thing. It doesn't it, help man. It doesn't help. It <laughs> makes don't. it makes them more it just they just dig in their heels. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and and also, look, the universe is weird. Physics is showing us it's weird. And I, I just, you know, uh, who knows? Who knows whether the whole thing was built for a purpose um, you know, it, it, I just think in, intellectual humility is f- warranted on epistemological, you might say, grounds, on philosophical grounds. Uh, and so, so in a way, both Meaning Black TV and, and Blotting TV are about cultivating a certain kind of humility uh, as we encounter views different from our own. Um, mindfulresistance.net is also uh, kind of about that. It, 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 it's about trying to understand. Calming down, trying to understand, well, why did people vote for Trump? They're people just like us. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think it's a mistake to act as if they all have the same pernicious motivation. They're all racist or they're all anything else. They're not. They're different people who voted for him for different reasons. And um, it's worth figuring it out and then figuring out what you do about it. And I think it's sometimes a mistake to react very strongly in an emotionally strong reaction to Trump's provocations because I think you're, you're actually playing into his hands so i'd like to think um that there is unity here um and i'm definitely doing a number of different things and and arguably too many but i hope you're right and uh some of them are are big (laughs) for me um
0: one of the most powerful conclusions you come to in this book is that understanding even at the most the lowest, most basic level of stress reduction, mindful meditation, say, that you can do if you manage 10 minutes a day, um, that understanding, the understanding you can achieve via that of the not-self, of nothingness, naturally, by virtue of what clarity of vision and nothingness and the not-self are, leads us to a better moral understanding. And I think that's a key aspect of this
1: book. Yeah, I don't think it's quite automatic. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think there are very adept meditators who have been famously bad people. There are (laughs) meditation teachers who have sexually exploited vulnerable students. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Now, I would say that if they say, and some of them probably have said, that they had attained enlightenment, I would personally say that's by definition not true. Buddhist enlightenment, in my sense of the term, would involve, you know, good conduct. To put it in strict terms, because I do think the fundamental traditional Buddhist idea is that if you're really seeing things clearly, it is improving you morally and not just in terms of your your own uh, well-being and happiness. Um, so, so I just want to add the footnote that I don't think it's it's. Meditation is guaranteed to make you a better person. And, and this is one reason that traditional Buddhism comes with a lot of explicit ethical guidance. That said, I do think there's a tendency for meditation, especially if done in, 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 the, in the explicit context of Buddhist ideas, I think there's a tendency for meditation to make people better people. Just calming down <laughs> makes you a less problematic person, right? It, it, makes Absolutely. You, it makes you cause fewer people trouble just at that level. And, and I think it continues from there, that, that you know, the deeper you go on the meditation path, by and large, if nothing else, the less of a problem you become for other people. The more aware you become that some of your knee-jerk moral judgments of people are unwarranted, uh, and that can reduce the amount of uh, unjustifiably bad behavior on your part. Um, so I, I, I strongly feel that there is a tendency. And that's good news, you know, that that self-help, which sounds ironic in light of Buddhist philosophy, but it let's you use the term anyway, that self-help uh, can make you not just happier but a better person. I think that, you know, the, the key questions, there's one point
0: in the in narrative where you're talking about a decision you make and you ask these questions. Will it make things better? No. Could it make things worse? Yes. Maybe I shouldn't do that. I think right. that the, those are two key questions to keep in mind as you regard your emotions and what they want you to do.
1: Yeah, well just like, you know, sending an email that you will regret. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the process of sending an email, you know, you get an email that you're, that annoys you and you, you know, you, this reply comes to mind that would kind of subtly convey your annoyance, but maybe not quite, it's not quite explicitly screaming, but it's, you know, it's clearly passive aggressive or whatever. Um, or maybe it is explicit screen, but whatever, if, if, you, if you examine what's going to make you click send, there's a feeling, right? There's a feeling that's like, yeah, this is what they deserve, right? I mean, that's a feeling in your gut mm-hmm. that is motivating you to send the email. And if you're meditating, you're more likely to observe the feeling and just have a microsecond to decide whether you want to follow it. So, so, yeah, I mean, and, 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 and all of our decisions, I mean, I, I talk about this in the book, uh, I think are ultimately motivated by feeling. This was the position of the philosopher David Hume. I think modern psychology mm-hmm. is showing him to have been right. And so if you're aware of the feelings that are governing your decisions, you, you, you have a second to pause and go, do I really want to, to press send or do I really want to do anything else?
0: It's interesting to me that the things that you discuss in this book uh, are based on scientific and philosophical traditions that have been around for a while. So I, I'm thinking that from Hume to William James to Robert Wright, that's a pretty natural I progression. That. Hume
1: James Wright. Yeah, I, I encourage <laughs> encourage people to, to uh, utter that that. Yeah. But think about, I mean, that's a kind of a,
0: a scientific, essentially tradition that somewhere between psychology and religion, and uh, just good
1: uh, social behavior. Well, as for Hume, I mean, Hume's a Western philosophy kind of famously had a Buddhist vibe in a lot of his thinking. He had questions about the existence of the self. Some people, Alison Gopnik at Berkeley thinks that maybe he actually encountered, uh, and she's shown that he could well have encountered Buddhist thought. Um, But there's a flip side to that, which is that Buddhism is more, quote, Western than people realize. Buddhist Mm -hmm. philosophy puts a lot of emphasis on causal forces. On the way our behavior is caused by things. And, and this is part of the skepticism about the existence of the self. It says like, look at the way behavior is actually generated. It's all these conditions and causes. It's you're reacting to things, there's input, there's output. It's like your, 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 your intuition that, oh no, I'm in here, there's some autonomous source of all the decision making. That that's very skeptical. That, that's a very western idea in the sense that, it, it, like Western science, uh, is emphasizing the pervasiveness of causality. So, so yeah, I, and, and as for William James, I mean, he was somebody who was interested, you know, more than a century ago, interested in finding a spirituality that was compatible with a modern worldview. And so he, he took Eastern ideas very seriously. And I just think he's one of the great thinkers and great writers of the past, uh, you know, couple hundred years in in uh, in, in kind of uh, Western philosophy and psychology. Um, so, so some of his ideas do come in in handy in the book.
0: Are you working on a new book now?
1: No, I'm <laughs> emphatically not working on a new book now. Um, I'm going to pause and reflect, continue to talk about this one, and see where it takes me. You know, books. The reception of a book can can take you places. It can, it can uh, lead you to, uh, you know, keep giving the same sermon because there's receptivity to it, just in other forms, you know, rather than writing another book. Go around, talk about it, whatever, Uh, I'm, I'm testing the water with this mindfulresistance.net thing, which is related to the book, although it's not only for meditators. Um, So I'm gonna see where this takes me and, uh, and then, and then pause and reflect. The new book by Robert Wright is Why Buddhism is True. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thank you, Rick. This was a great conversation.